Welcome to the Newtown Big Dreams Podcast, an interview-style talk show that's your gateway to the fabulous and fascinating people who relocated to start a new life. Whether you're new to our podcast or your city, our fellow neighbors from across Canada, North America, and the entire English-speaking world share their stories of reaching new horizons and big dreams. So sit back and relax as we navigate in-depth and intimate conversations with entrepreneurs, thought leaders, executives, creatives, and anyone who can share their story about their new town, Big Dreams. And now, here's your host, Luke J. Menkes. Hey everybody, it's about three o'clock in the afternoon here on the West Coast. And uh, it's March 31st, 2021. I am with Devin Miller, who is near Salt Lake City, Utah. Now, Devin loves startups. He started his first startup company, while he was earning his law and MBA degrees. And since then, he has set up several more startups and he enjoys every minute of it. Devin has a real passion for the new business model. The prospect of a business startup always makes his heart race. Now, Devin is an entrepreneur and he's also a patent and trademark attorney. He's obtained several degrees. This is amazing. He's got a JT which is a law degree, and he's got a master's in business administration, and he even has degrees in electrical engineering and Mandarin Chinese. So in addition to founding and running his own patent and trademark law firm, Miller IP Law, Devin is the co-founder of several startups, including a multi-million dollar startup for wearable glucose monitoring. And Devin runs a product development company that helps startups and small businesses with developing their uh, ideas and products. So I'm really excited to talk to Devin today about how he manages to accomplish so much in such a short amount of time. And I want to talk to him about patent and trademark law. So Devin, thanks so much for coming on the show and welcome. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here. And that, that bio makes me sound like I'm a lot cooler than I really am. So that was a great <laughs> intro. Thank you. And I didn't even read all of it. There's like a lot of great <laughs> stuff in here. And uh, you, so you've been in uh, the Salt Lake City area, multi-generations, you were telling me before the show. Um, how far back does your family go there? Um, so I live in what is, and I, it's probably for anybody's standard, a pretty small town. It's called Morgan, Utah. Um, so it's just North of Salt Lake city and they family reaches back to, they, they founded the town. So it was in the late or mid 1800s. They moved into the town. They actually started at a sawmill. They built it from there. They grew it up. And so I, I can or trace my lineage back to basically the founding of the town in the mid 1800s. And the joke was always, so I, I grew up here. Um, I have, I'm related or I'm related because we're one of the founding or, you know, been or reached back to the founders. I was always one that, you know, joke was always, I had a hard time dating because I was related to everybody. <laughs> And so I had to wait for new people to move in, so to speak. But yeah, I've been here forever. I love small towns. I, I'm a big uh, proponent of them, and and, uh, and uh, been here for as much as long as I can remember. With a few stints out out outside of the town for college and for uh, some other religious missions. I see. So it's definitely home for you. Um, Absolutely. You're, you're you're married with four children. Did your wife come from the same town? 
She did. She didn't come. She's not. Doesn't. She can't claim quite as far back on the generational stuff. But yeah, her or her family moved in uh, when she was uh, when she was young, and they've been here for. 30, 40, I don't know, 50 years, something like that. So she's been here, or her family's been here for a while as well. Cool. Is it um, a big city? Like, how many people do you think? Oh, no, it's not a big city. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I might give you an idea. My graduating class in high school is under 200. It was like 180. Um, The total population, it's growing a lot more than I would like. I still love Salt Town. It's still very small. You probably have a population of less or seven, 8,000. When I was growing up here, it was more like three or 4,000. So um, now we have bigger cities nearby, but the, the actual town's a lot smaller. Is Salt Lake City a far drive? Um, 35, 40 minutes. So it, okay. it's not too far away. All right. So if someone wants a big shopping day or something, they, <laughs> they go down there, I guess. Even closer. There's some other towns that are bigger. You can, you can go to movie theater, restaurants, shopping and all that 15 minutes away. So it's kind of a smaller town or tucked away between some bigger towns. Cool. Well, I've never been, but, uh, driven through Utah on the way to California. I was coming, coming Northern route, okay. and it is absolutely beautiful. Uh, I don't know much about it except that it's absolutely beautiful, but, uh, how do you, um, find the time to do all this stuff? Like you got all these degrees, you've got a great family. Do you sleep? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I sleep more now than I used to. So I guess I hopefully move it in the right direction. You know, I don't know how I, I mean, I always, I like to do, I like to keep busy and, you know, so I always used to joke, but there's a lot of truth to it. You know, when somebody asked me what my hobby is, my hobby was a startup. I mean, I just like doing startups and businesses. And usually if I have time to ponder, that's what my mind tends to wander towards. If I am, you know, reading a book is usually on business or a, bi- a biography of somebody that did business. I um, mean, you know, so I always do that. So generally I, I, I keep, like to keep pretty busy. You know, you mentioned just to give you kind of an idea of how busy I kept when I did my first startup and that's now an eight figure going out on a nine figure business um you know the it started out i was doing my law degree my i was earning my law degree my mba degree i was working 20 hours as a law clerk i had a newborn that was two years old and or i had a bait or a kid that was two years old and we just had a newborn so i had one that was like just a couple months old and then i started a startup as well so i don't know (laughs) how i figure out the time but i i I love it and, and i wouldn't have it any other way that's awesome so um, you're into a lot of things, electrical mm-hmm. engineering. You've learned Mandarin, but mm-hmm. uh, your specialty is really patent law and intellectual property. So okay. tell us about that. Tell us how you got into that and what you love about it. Yeah. So I, that would almost go probably back to undergraduate as far as really kind of how it all started, both on the business side and on the law side. But I was kind of coming out and I did Mandarin Chinese. So I served a, a religious mission for my church and I was in Taiwan for a couple of years. And then I came back and I'd really was always more intending to go the electrical engineering route. But I'm like, well, I already got a lot of, I know Mandarin. I studied for two years. I could speak it and write it and whatnot. And so I came back. I'm like, well, I'll add that as a, on as a second degree. But engineering is really where I was headed. And I got towards the end of my undergraduate and I said, well, you know, I, I like engineering, but I don't want to be an engineer in the sense that, you know, usually with engineering, you are, you have to work your way up on the pro or work your way up for 20 years in order to have really any say in a company or to really have an impact to see the big picture. You're usually stuck on a project for months or years at a time and you're a smaller cog in a big wheel for most of your career. And I said, I don't know that I want that. So I was right. kind of saying, well, what do I want to do? And I said, well, I love entrepreneurs and I like startups. I also really find the law interesting and some of the intellectual property and work with a lot of businesses. So that's where then I went to, uh, got my MBA as well as my law degree. And I really kind of, that's been my mantra of my whole career is 
I don't want to choose between a startup and the law, so I've always done both. But on the law side, I, I, I went off to law school and I graduated. And it was really – I went in knowing that I really wanted to do a lot on the intellectual property side and to work for patents and startups because on that sense, I get to be an engineer. I get to see all the cool things. I get to figure out how they work. I get to work with a lot of businesses. But I don't have to go and be on the project for or months or years at a time. So I kind of get to play the best of both worlds of seeing a lot of cool things, working with a lot of exciting people all at once. And so that was kind of where it started. And I went and worked for a period of time, as you mentioned in the intro, for a large law firm. You know, there was a lot of um, worked with some, you know, very na- or name recognition companies. But I always loved the startup and small business and probably is my nature. And so that's kind of then it evolved into, hey, I want to start my own firm really so I can focus on the clients that I love. And that's what I've been doing since I started the firm. Yeah, that's interesting. My dad always said, like, you don't uh, I didn't need to be a lawyer if I didn't want to, but I should know enough about the law that I can hire a good lawyer and know <laughs> what he's talking about, right? Mm. You can't just go in blind to stuff, but you're, you're an expert in these facets of uh, business that come together. So mm. why is intellectual property so important for a startup? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons. And, you know, really, if you think of intellectual property, it, it's a pretty good name for it in the sense it's something in the, in your head, something that you, it's not tangible. It's not like property or an asset, a, a physical thing. It's not a building. It's not a widget. It's really in your head, but it's still property. You still had to create it. You still had to own it. So a lot of what you find with any size of business, but particularly with a startup or small business is you put a lot of time and effort into developing different things. You can develop, you know, if you're a widget company, you need a patent. If you're developing, the next great iPhone or you're great developing the next great whatever it is you put a lot of time and effort and blood sweat and tears into developing that mm-hmm. and yet it's kind of like a magic trick once you know once it's been developed once you know the trick of how it works it's a lot easier to figure it out and to reverse engineer it or copy it and so you always kind of have a disincentive if you didn't have intellectual property the first person that invents something is always the one that loses out because they put in all the time and effort and money and then they show everybody the magic trick they say oh that's a great idea now I'm going to copy it so intellectual property, whether it's patents for inventions, trademarks or for or for brands, copyrights or for creative stuff, all of those are really set up to one for one side is to help you to protect it, to make sure that as you put in all that R&D and put money and time and effort, that you're not simply, simply somebody's not going to come along and copy that. Yeah. The second thing that it also does, in addition to just providing that protection, is it gives you an asset in the company. So a lot of times, especially the startup or small business, a lot of what your business is tied up in is either the invention that you created, something that's new, proprietary, or different, or it's a brand that you've created, the following, or anything else, and yet... You know, those are assets that are hard to capture. How do you capture, hey, we built a lot of goodwill. Everybody knows who we are unless you can trademark it. And then you have something that says, okay, this represents our values. No, nobody else can use this brand but us. Or, hey, we put in a lot of time and effort to create this widget. We did all the R&D. We're really smart. We came up with it. Now, how do we, how do we create an asset around that that's investable that people can license or buy or they can acquire or merge or any of that? It creates mm-hmm. that asset. So really, when you're looking at it, intellectual property, one, helps you protect all of that blood, sweat, and tears. And then two, it allows you to grow and build an asset within your company. Yeah. So explain to the listeners, what is the difference between a patent, a trademark, a copyright? Because I think a lot of people have a vague idea of what that is. Intellectual property, it's an idea that you want to conceptualize and protect. 
But what is the difference between those different terms? Yeah, and you hit that very well. Intellectual property is kind of an umbrella term that encapsulates patents, trademarks, copyrights. You know, and as a complete aside, every time I always, I always have to smile and I get exactly why people come and say, I got a great idea. Now I want a trademark. It says, we probably don't want a trademark. You probably want to patent it, but I'm, I'm here to help. Um, <laughs> But if you're to look at it, breaking it down, or patents really go towards anything that's an invention. So if it's a widget, it does something. And that can be hardware, it can be devices, it can be software, it can be something that's mechanical. It's pretty well anything that does a functionality. It provides a utility. It does something. That's going to be a patent or an invention. Trademarks mm-hmm. are going to be more towards a brand. Anything that's really related to your brand of your business. And so that could be name of the company, name of a product, a catchphrase, a logo. Anything that you're kind of building your branding around is going to be encapsulated with that, um, with the trademark. Mm-hmm. Copyrights are going to be more on the creative side. And that's more of, hey, if you're creating a creative work. So that could be anything from a book, a sculpture, a movie, a television show, podcast, photos, anything that's kind of more in the creative nature that you're creating something that's, you know, not necessarily functional, but has a, a, a cool thing to it. And so that's what you're going to be with the copyright. So when you're breaking it down, those are kind of the three areas that you're generally going to look at when you're trying to protect and grow your business. Mm-hmm. Now, can anything, any concept be patented or trademarked or copyright? That's a lot of questions in one. So I'll try and break <laughs> it down just a bit. Okay. On the patent side, so mostly anything there are a few things that they have just simply said can't be patented perpetual motion machine they just said can't be patented defies the laws of physics although if you create a perpetual motion machine i am sure you can get a patent on it and you'll also not have to worry about getting a patent because you're going to be rich anyway um cure for cancer is kind of in that same thing they said can't cure cancer there isn't a way to do that you can do treatments and you can do things like that but just to simply cure for cancer not patented again if you figure it out be my guest. But beyond that, um, really, when you look at what is patentable, anything is patentable as, as long as it really meets a, a few criteria. One is called novelty. The other one's called obviousness. And the third one's called abstraction. Now, what do those mean? Novelty means it's Anybody else previously invented this? If somebody else has already invented it, you can't patent something that somebody else already invented because you didn't invent it, so you can't patent it. Mm-hmm. Second one, obviousness is, okay, well, not one person has invented it, but all you're really doing is taking a couple things out in the marketplace. You're just putting them together in an obvious way. You're not really adding anything new. You're just putting a couple things together. And again, they're saying if it's obvious, you're just a c- combining a, or one or two or more things together in a, a new way that you're, or in an obvious way that's really not adding anything, can't patent it. Or vice versa, if it's novel, nobody's invented it before, it's not obvious or it's new you can do it the last criteria for patent is going to be whether or not it's abstract meaning what you can't do is just take something that people have been done with pen and paper in their head those type of things put it on a computer put it on a device and say hey i created something new so you can't take two plus two equals four everybody knows two plus two equals four you memorize it from your kid you can't simply go put it on a computer now i made the computer do two plus two equals four you can't patent that because you're really not adding it's still abs what they would call abstract and so those Mm -hmm. are kind of your three criteria as long as you meet within those three criteria, you can patent just about anything. The one exception, one other exception is generally business methods. You used to be able to patent those about 10 years ago. And that's kind of where Amazon got into the one-click thing and some of the other ones. Those are incredibly hard to get now. So if you're trying to just say, I just want to do a method for how I conduct my business, probably not patentable. But otherwise, you're pretty open. Okay. Now on trademarks, and uh, and you asked on that, and copyrights are pretty much as long as you created something new, you did it yourself. That's an easy one. As long mm-hmm. as you didn't copy somebody, as long as you didn't steal from someone, you cre- you took the picture, you wrote the book, you did anything else. Generally, you're able to copyright it. Trademarks, and then I'll take a pause. Is um, on the uh, is whether or not your brand is confusingly similar to a brand that's already out there. So you can't go get you can't go get an, a 
the, a trademark on the word Nike for athletic wear, sports gear, and apparel, because guess what? There's already a company out there named Nike that sells shoes. But if on the other hand, um, you know, you do something that's not confusingly similar, and that can mean a few different things. It can mean that you come up with a new word, a new brand that no, is never out there. Or, you know, there are a lot of same or similar brands that coexist out there, but they're for a lot of different products. So theoretically, you could go start Nike Automotive because Nike does not have any, does not do anything in the automobile industry. They don't sell cars. They never done anything with it. So you could go start Nike Automotive. Now, maybe don't do that because they're really famous and they'll probably sue you anyway. But theoretically, as long as it's not confusingly similar with that's out there, you can get a trademark. So mm-hmm. pause there. That was a lot to unpack. Hopefully I kind of unpacked it. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So um, patent law, I think it's actually written in the Constitution, right? There's something yeah. in there. So there, there's foundations for patent law in the Constitution in order to protect that. So in the old days, I don't know how much uh, history, you know, on patent law, but what happened in the old days, you know, before the internet, people would be, you know, buy the uh, oil lamp, you know, writing out stuff. And two people somehow simultaneously came up with something that... They said, no, I was first. I didn't steal it. And they both got the same story, basically. Mm. What would happen? So there's there's a difference between how the patent system in the U.S., and I'll go with the U.S., um, was originally yeah. set up and how it works today. So originally, okay. in, until about 2013, so let's say pre-2013, you could, if you were the first to invent and you can improve you were the first to invent, you would be the one to be able to get the rights to it. They were basically saying, hey, you can file. So it worked as... The, if let's say we both filed a patent today, I came up with the world's next best iPhone. You came up with the world's best best iPhone. It, somehow miraculously, we came up with the same idea. We filed it on the same day. Then they, you know, first of all, if I file, if I filed it today and you filed it tomorrow, presumption is I got it because I filed on it before you. Mm-hmm. But before 2013, there was ability to say, no, I've been working on this for 10 years, and here's a proof. Here's let me show you that I've been working on it for 10 years. You could actually go back. And get it before me. Even though I filed on it first, you could show that you were the first to invent, the first inventor. And so for for a while there, you could it was the first it, U.S. was the first to invent system. Whoever was the first one to create it, as long as you could show it, you could come and file on a patent, and then you could get the the patent on it. 2013 comes along, and the U.S. kind of said, "Well, yeah, we like that system, but 99% of the rest of the world is under what's called a first to first to file system, which mm-hmm. basically does away with all of that first to invent. And it doesn't matter if you can go prove how early you did it. It's a first person to file. It makes it a lot simpler. We don't have to worry about everybody proving it. We don't have all these court battles. And so in 2013, the U.S. switched over to what the rest, most of the rest of the world does, which is a first to file system. So now it's pretty simple. Whoever files on it, who files the application first is the one that gets it. And if yeah. we file the same day, it depends on which hour if we file the same hour or the first minute so generally whoever files first is going to get it now i guess theoretically if you could do it exactly the same time down to the millisecond i don't know how they would do it but i don't know that it's ever happened <laughs> right now there are patent disputes um i used to follow apple computer pretty religiously read the mm. news every day and i read about something you know five six years ago called patent trolls mm. and what they would do is buy up cheap patents and just be suing Apple computer and suing people all the time. And it was like a, a whole cottage industry. Mm-hmm. So what, how's a patent dispute possible if, you know, it's first of all, I've got a patent on something and it shouldn't be disputed. Should it? Yeah. Usually when, 
Patent trolls are a bit, and I'll save that for a minute. Just going off of what a dispute is in generally, what the question is, is, you know, so when they file a patent, it gets examined for patentability. You have an examiner that looks at it. They'll go out and do a search and try and figure out what's already previously been invented, that obvious combination, everything else. They'll go out and do a search. But they're not infallible. They're not perfect. And so a lot of times when a patent dispute arises, there's a few different ways. One is they just say, hey, you ripped off my product, you started copying it, and therefore we have a patent on it, we're going to go sue you. And that one's an easy or a more easy. But even that, then they say, well, let's interpret your patent. What does your patent actually cover? Do we do actually what your patent? So that will be kind of one time of type of patent ex- or dispute is whether or not what their patent covers or what they actually got patented is what you're actually doing. If it is, you lose. If it's not, if you can say, hey, really what they patented was a, product or a device that had features A, B, C, and D. Well, we only do A and B. We don't we don't infringe your patent and we're okay. So that's one type of dispute. The other one is going to be, yeah, we do A, B, C, and D. We infringe your patent, but we don't think your patent should have ever got or should have got uh, allowed in the first place. They should have never let that go. And let us submit all the uh, evidence as to what was previously invented out there, why you don't meet that criteria, and let's go fight about it. So there's a couple different mm-hmm. types of disputes out there. One is whether or not you I infringe your patent or not. And two is whether or not your patent is actually valid or not. Now, when you get into patent trolls, which is what you hit on a bit, patent trolls are going to raise a question of they get a good name or they get a bad name in this. Some of it's well, well deserved, but basically defining what a patent troll is for everybody out there. Patent troll is someone that is also called what's called a non-practicing entity. So their whole mission, they don't go create anything. They don't sell any products. They basically either buy patents or license patents and they go sue people. Now, if I were to say, you know, where people get mad about it is to say, well, how's that fair? You know, you've got all these people that they're really not contributing anything. Their whole business model is just, hey, we're going to go sue everybody until and make lots of money. And so people get worked up and mad about it. And I definitely get it. And there's some people that they unscrupulously, they'll go and file or, you know, file false law or lawsuits that they know aren't going to win, but they're going to extract money because people are saying it's more expensive to fight them than to just cave into them. Mm-hmm. Now, if I were to defend patent trolls, and there is a portion that I will defend. Now, let's get let's get let's give you one scenario. Let's say you were a small business and you created the world's let's say you created the the perpetual motion machine and you could get a patent on it. And now you've got the perpetual motion machine. And then you have a big company come along, whether it's Amazon, Intel, Apple, whoever, and says, that's a great idea. Now we have a whole bunch of money. We're going to copy you. And you say, great. Now, how am I going to go fight them? Because no matter if I'm in the right and they are infringing my patent, there's no way I can I can outlast Apple. They're just going to spend me under the table. So one of the things that you can do as a startup or a small business is you go to the patent troll and say, hey, we've got this great patent. We put in a ton of time and effort to develop it. Now we're getting ripped off and we can't do it. But we have a really good case and the patent troll will say, okay, we'll either take a license or we'll buy the patent from you and we'll go enforce it because we have the resources to do it. And so that's sometimes if I were to defend patent trolls, they do play a good role, but they also have a lot of bad actors. Yeah. For sure. Definitely. So um, what about a startup business? Like at what point should someone protect their business? Because there's costs involved. And then especially if you get into a dispute, it can be costly. On the other hand, you don't want someone to file a patent for something that you've been working on for a long time. Mm-hmm. So what, when should a startup protect their, their intellectual property? Yeah. I mean, how you enforce it, and we'll hold that to a separate or a bit of a separate question. But you know, as far as when you should start it, really, I would take a step back and say whether it's patent, trademark, or anything else. First, to figure out what is core to your business. Do you need a patent? Do you need a trademark or anything else? Because the reason is, is you know, sometimes if I'm the world's next best 
best brand company, I'm really going to just outcompete everybody on customer service, or I'm going to be, you know, more efficient or cost effective. I don't need a patent because that's not what it is. So first thing is if, on vice versa, let's say, no, I'm not a brand company. We, we're not going to build a brand. We're going to build a really cool widgets. And that's what, you know, we're going to be a product company or that. And that's what people are going to buy from us. Cause that's why they're coming to us. So figure out what your business is and figure out what, or what, you know, what your core of your business is. Once mm-hmm. you figure that out, then it's usually earlier is better in the sense that there's a couple things to consider that one we've already hit on. It's a first to file system. So if you're in a very competitive marketplace, a lot of people are creating a lot of interesting or innovative things and there's a lot of people working on the same problem you're going to want to probably file earlier on so you don't have someone else come along file a patent that or file a patent for you and and box you out of what you're doing Mm -hmm. so that's kind of the one thing look at how competitive your marketplace is less competitive you can if you you can probably wait a little bit longer more competitive you want to be earlier on The other thing to consider when you're looking at when to file a patent is the U.S. and most other countries are are also have a rule that once you put something out into the public, you have a year from which you can actually file a patent on it. So if I go out, I put it on a website, I go start selling it, I go to trade shows, I do a presentation, I do webinars, I start pitching investors, whatever it is, I'm putting it out in the public. You get that from the first time you put it out in the public, it starts that time clock ticking and you have a year to decide when to do it. If you miss that window, you just now donated it to the public and anybody can do it, whoever wants to do it. So when you're doing it, those are a few things. First, look and see how competitive the marketplace is. Second, if, you, if you're going to or already have put it out in the public, you need to be aware of that deadline. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, it's really just a matter of, you know, every startup and small business has more money to spend than money or more things to spend money on than money to spend. And so mm-hmm. you're going to have to say, what is, you know, if you go get a patent and your business goes under, I wouldn't tell you to go to get a patent because it doesn't do you any good. And so you're always balancing, okay, we want to protect what's core to us, but we have to get some sort of a business that can actually support us. So get your business, figure it out, get a, a plan together, and then work it into your budget and strategize when you're able to afford it. Yeah. Now, uh, we know a lot of startups, they need capital and they need investors, are there people out there that um, say, yeah, tell me about your business. I'm an angel investor and mm. tell me all about it. And then they go, you know what? I'm not interested. And then six months later, you see this pop up someplace else and someone files a patent. Does that, does that happen? I'm sure, I'm sure it happens. And I, you know, I don't know of any direct stories, but where you really get into it is some people they'll do it and they'll say, oh, that's a great idea. Now I'm going to go steal it. And that's whether it's investors, whether it's a manufacturer or anything else. And, you know, it may not even be, if I were to give them a lot of them, it may not be malice intent. They say, oh, that's a good or base idea for it. And now I'm going to do it. And I have heard people that come in, or clients in my office that come in and say, you know, I had this great idea and I went and told X, Y, and Z person. And six months later, I saw it out in the marketplace and I think they copied it. Maybe they did. But the other thing that a lot of times, especially when you get into investors, is they get pitched. There's a lot of people that have a lot of similar ideas, especially for a competitive marketplace that are all trying to work on it. So as an investor, if you're a good performing investment fund, angel investor, venture capital, you get pitched a lot of ideas. And a lot of the ideas can be similar. Let's say you have an expertise, and I'm making up, an augmented reality. And that's really where your investment fund specializes in. Well, you may get pitched 20 augmented reality ideas a month, and now you're saying, yeah, there are a lot of them are the same. And I'm going to choose the one that not only is a good idea, but also has a good team behind it. They have a good plan behind it. I think right. they're, you know, they're going to be viable. And so to the outside world, say, well, yeah, that, that investor stole my idea when really there was another company that was also working on it, had a similar idea, a different approach maybe, and they're going to look at that. And so that, you know, so... Does that happen? I think it happens probably occasionally. I don't think it happens as much as people probably think it does. 
Mm-hmm. So you touched on a couple of points there. Um, what investors look for in a startup. So not just the intellectual property, but the ability to execute the team. Is mm-hmm. there anything else that an investor is going to look at when they're looking at a startup? I mean, what if I were to probably the number one thing is investors are looking for the team, the individual and the team that's going to drive it because you can have a mediocre idea and a great team and they'll probably succeed. You can have a great idea and a bad team and it doesn't matter how great the ideas or the product they're likely to fail. So they're always looking at who are the team? Do I think that they're going to be able to do it? And a lot of times they're going to say, have you done this before? If you've already done a successful startup once, it's a lot easier to get the money the second time because they know you've actually built and been through it than your first time. So one is get that core team together. Another one is get a plan together. And that, you know, that's one thing. It doesn't need to be, you know, business plans are great. And I'm not, I'm not, when I say get a plan together, it doesn't need to be the long 20 or 100 page plan where it's a business plan and I fill in all the dots. They just want to have a confidence that you've thought through the marketplace. So when it comes to who's your customer, how are you going to approach them? You know, what are you going to do? How are you going to protect this? How are you going to outcompete the bigger guys? You need to have those answers such that you can convince them to do that. You know, mm-hmm. one of the worst ways you can pitch, I think, or at least a lot of what I hear from investors and been through myself is it's simply just, you know, here's the whole pitch. I've got this great idea and you explain the X, Y, Z. And they say, okay, now how are you going to bring to market? Well, I don't know, but you know, think about how big the market is, this is a $50 billion market. And if I just get 1% of that marketplace, <laughs> we'll all be rich. And they're going to say, well, how are you going to do it? I don't know, but we only need to get 1%. And it's a horrible pitch because they're not, they're not, yeah, they understand the market may be big, but if you don't have an idea of how you're going to compete in the market, just simply trying to or skim over that with how big the market is, that's a a red flag um and then intellectual property is another one so i'd say team having a strategy and a plan in place and then um, having a way to uh, protect it and have something proprietary are a lot of times the three big things the other thing that they're going a lot of investors are going to want to look at is they're going to want to know how they get their money back within a reasonable amount of time if you go in and say i've got a great business we're going to build it and in 50 years we're all going to be rich (laughs) they're going to say well our investment fund usually is looking for three to five years before we get a return and if you're not in the three to five years you can go build a business It'll be great for you, but it's not for an investor. So you need to know how long the investor is expecting before they're going to get a return. Because you may you may have a good business and you may not need an investor. You may not want an investor because they're going to want to get it um, a return a lot sooner than you're going to be able to. Right. Have you seen uh, Shark Tank? Oh, I've I've pretty much watched every episode. So me and my wife, uh, that's our (laughs) Sunday show that we always watch together. I started watching a few seasons, then I wrote my wife into it. Now we always watch it on Sunday. So yeah, I think. If not every episode, pretty close to every episode. Nice. So when you watch it, do you ever, because you're an expert, do you ever say, mm. that's not realistic? Like, this has been Hollywoodized. Uh, <laughs> it's like a little over the top. Like, that's not that's not how it works in an actual negotiation. There's a lot of good aspects to it. I think it, one thing I love about the show is that it teaches a lot of good business principles. It teaches people what they should be considering and it gives, it inspires people to do a lot of good things to go out, start a business to, because they, they can be successful. Now, a yeah. few things that people often don't look about or look at is a lot of the, you know, everybody always thinks, Oh, they got on Shark Tank and they agreed to a deal and now it's, it's going to go through and it's, it's perfect after that. They always do due diligence after Shark Tank, meaning they're going to go and check if you're lying to them, if you misrepresent the 
the facts. If you say that you got $20 million in sales and you only had $20,000 in sales, they're not going to give you their money. So right. there's right. a lot of due diligence where they go in and investigate everything afterwards. And a lot of those you know deals that you see that are successful in Shark Tank, they end up falling through afterwards. Or in another example, you'll have three or four sharks that all go in on a deal together. Interesting is if you look at it, a lot of times the deals when they have multiple sharks tend to fall through more, more often if you get a single mm-hmm. shark because it's hard to get all the parties to agree and they all want to have it they have different ideas they do different due diligence and so a lot of times even if you get a multiple sharks it ends up being one shark or none at all so that's one of the biggest huh. things that they they tend to i think hollywood eyes a bit is that not all the deals really go through in the end i see cool good to know i i make my uh daughter watch it and she loves it so that's great that's good to know. I, um, I love it as well. I, the only thing, the last thing, and this is a complete aside note, yeah. I do miss the days early on in Shark Tank, they had much smaller companies. I was like, hey, I'm coming in asking for 50000 I've just got a very small business. Nowadays, every time I watch it, it's like, hey, we want to give 10% of our company away at a $20 million valuation of our company. And so the size of the companies are such that now it's becoming more of a platform to when you already have a successful company, as opposed to when it originally started out, it was a lot more of small ideas that they were investing to help out the the startups yeah true very true so how do you increase the valuation of a business what are some ways to do that (laughs) sales (laughs) right i mean what it's always it's gonna go back to you need to or prove in the marketplace if you're wanting to get prove it out in the marketplace Easiest way to do it or the quickest way is to go get sales because sales speak louder than anything else. Now, yeah. that's not the only way. I mean, if you can, uh, you know, some of the businesses, you're going to need money. If I work with some medical device companies that are, I've done some myself from the wearables. I've done others that are clients of my firm, but medical devices and wearables and some consumer, they're expensive. It takes a lot of R&D, takes a lot of time, money and effort. And you're not going to be able to go get sales before you need money. Meaning if you, but unless you're exorbitantly wealthy yourself and can just simply sell fun, most startups aren't going to be able to go get those sales before they go ask for money because they're going to need that money to get the sales. And so it's mm-hmm. a bit, you know, make chicken and the egg. So what you then have to do is you have to show different steps along the way that you're moving towards marketability, market viability, or that you're increasing your valuation. So sometimes that is, hey, we're developing this new breakthrough technology. And as we show that this technology is work, we're doing some trials, we're doing some that, hey, look, it's starting to work. Now we got an increase of valuation. We're worth more than we used to be because we proven out the technology now we've proven out that technology we've now should gone out and got pre-orders we're showing that people are going to want to do it there's another milestone now we've got it manufactured and we've actually got product and ha- there's another mile so a lot of times if you're if you can go get sales easiest way to do it if you need to get that money beforehand one is first of all build a really good team that they can invest in that they have the confidence in and then um, go in and figure out what those milestones are that say, hey, we're so far. Here's why we are worth what we're at. Here's what we're going to do and over what time frame. And as you hit those milestones, then you increase in valuation. For sure. And you want to make those milestones too. You don't want to be a person who says, well, we're going to do this by April 15th. And then you're, mm-hmm. you always have an excuse for why it couldn't get done. That's a, that's a bad sign for an investor. Yeah. Right? And, and- to a degree there's always going to be pivot i've never been in a startup or been part of one where you didn't end up different place in the end than where you started out at very seldom 
occasionally it happens, but most of the time you're going to have to pivot and adjust and adapt to the marketplace. So they're going to be understanding of that, but you should still be hitting milestones. And the other thing is if you're not hitting milestones, you need to be honest with your investors, tell them why you're not hitting it and what you're doing to remedy it. And so they'll be reasonable to a point. Now, if you keep missing milestone after milestone after milestone, at some point they're not. So one to set realistic milestones, hit them. And if not, have a good reason why you didn't hit them and what you're going to do to remedy it. Yeah. Right. Now in your bio, uh, you said you focus on being home each evening with your family. Do you have a challenge? Cause I have a challenge sometimes. Uh, do you have a challenge like shutting this off, like shutting your phone off and just when you're working on something exciting, is it, is it a challenge to just shut, shut the brain off for that yeah, aspect it, of your life? And sometimes I can't shut, but you'll, you can ask my wife, I'll get there. Most of the time I'm a pretty sound sleeper and I can just, I hit the pillow and I'm going to sleep within five minutes. If, if not one or two minutes, yeah. but every yeah. once in a while, I'll just get, I'll just sit there in my bed and no matter how much I want to go to sleep, I can't shut my brain off. So it still happens. But what I really found is I, I had to, you know, if I wanted to have a good family, if I wanted to be a good father and husband, which I cherish more honestly than any of my business accomplishments. And I, you know, I love business and I love startups, as I said, but I, I eventually got to the point and I said, you know, because every day you go into work and there's always fires to put out. There's always things to do and things to get done. And I, I always, I found after a long time and after doing it, I never could get them all done. I never could put out all the fires. I can never get everything done. So I basically just had to set a rule for myself. Hey, when I get done, when I get to a certain point in the day, there's going to be more fires tomorrow. I'll leave those fires for tomorrow. I'll put those out today. And I come in each day putting, trying to put out as many fires as I can. And then when I go home, I unplug. And I have to specifically say, I'm going to unplug because I need to be there for the family. Yeah. Most of the time, I'm pretty good. It still goes in waves. I'm not perfect. Sometimes I do it a lot better. Sometimes I slip and I end up working late hours. And then, it, you know, I, I realize that I'm, my family or family's having to sacrifice. So, but that's generally how I do it is I try and look at it and say, Unless this is a fire that absolutely needs to be put out because the burning's gonna or the building's gonna burn down, yeah. I'll wait to put put that out tomorrow. Go home and spend time with the family. Come back, re-energize, and hit it as hard as I can. Yeah, makes sense. That's great. Well, uh, that's a really great story, and uh, I'm really glad you took the time. I can tell just uh, from talking to you how busy you are, right? And uh, I really appreciate it. I know my listeners are gonna really appreciate it too. So we've learned. Uh, some about intellectual property and how investment works. And um, that's great. So thanks, Devin. Absolutely. It was fun to be on and share and, uh, and uh, take a, a bit of a trip down memory lane. So thank you for having me on. You're very welcome. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Newtown Big Dreams podcast with your host, Luke Menkes, and his authentic guests. And we love our listeners and hope you subscribe now to learn more about the amazing journeys of our incredible guests who relocated to find a new town, big dreams. And remember, make your dreams big.